Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. The state of Michigan faces a big decision in the voting booth this fall. Who is going to be our next governor? The field is wide open as Republican Governor Rick Snyder completes his second and final term. Last week, we heard from the three major Democratic candidates for governor. You can check those conversations out on WDET.org. Today, we hear from the Republicans vying for their party's nomination in August. A bit later in the program, we will talk to Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly, who hopes to build on Governor Snyder's legacy. But first, Attorney General Bill Schuette has been a state legislator, a congressman, an appellate court judge, and a department head under then-Governor John Engler. Schuette is the most credentialed person running for governor this year. He's also running a campaign closely aligned with the message of President Donald Trump, one of the everyman who abhors career politicians and seeks to right the wrongs done by insiders and career bureaucrats. Can Schuette have it both ways? Yes. Yeah, geez, <laughs> gonna answer the question before I even introduce him. I'm just, I'm just, I'm a happy warrior. I'm just happy to be here. Hey, listen, thank you for listing my, my credentials because this is about experience. This is about a skill set. Yeah. This is about hiring who the next CEO of Michigan is. And you, you don't want the faint of heart. You don't want someone who uh, you know, blows uh, when the winds or the storm comes. And one thing I'd add, I've, I've served as a judge yes. on the Michigan Court of Appeals. That's right. And, well, and, we said uh, that. I no, said you that. didn't. You missed I that. I sure did. I said an appellate judge. Well, okay. I uh, have followed your career very closely I, I'm just so my whole life. You, so. you, you spelled my name uh, <laughs> correctly. Now, the first time President Trump, who I appreciate his endorsement of my candidacy, first time he uh, tweeted his support, he yeah. spelled my name wrong. But, you know, I I told the president. He spelled so, a lot of things. So right. is half of Michigan. You yeah. know, so he's in good well, company. Well, so, company. so let's start with this idea uh, of running against the idea of insiders and career bureaucrats when you are somebody who has been in government service all of your professional career or almost all of it? Is that right? Actually, you're expressing uh, that that's not really the issue that means presented to, to voters. The okay. question is, the question is, is that you're hiring a CEO and we need to have someone who has a skill set and a set of experiences to go from good to great. Right. Now, and w what we need to have in Michigan is, is more jobs and uh, bigger paychecks and more people. There's not one, there's not one issue that could be lessened if we didn't have more people in Michigan. And I'm running for governor. Uh, to be Michigan's jobs governor mm -hmm. so that we uh, uh, grow our state. I want us to win again. I want us to compete against the Carolinas and the Texases and the uh, Nevadas for jobs and paychecks. And, you know, that's why I'm running. We need to, to win again because we're 300,000 jobs short today mm -hmm. than, than we uh, were during the you know disastrous uh, governorship of Jennifer Granholm in the Great Recession. So, so but again, let's go back to this question. I, I, and I, I, I don't mean to, to pester, yeah, but right. you've I, never I, been a pester. <laughs> I think, I think I, I deserve a better answer to that question. It, it, it seems as though you're having it both ways, uh, that that you're running against uh, insiders, that you're running against the the sort of status quo, but that you represent that status quo in so many ways. No, actually, I'm running for governor because I want our state to grow, and I want I want to. Uh, you know, eliminate the grand home income tax uh, that is 
cost Amer Michigan taxpayers $8 billion. And one reason President Trump has endorsed me for governor is because he knows I'm going to cut taxes in Michigan like he cut taxes in America. And you can't dispute it, Stephen, that the Trump tax cuts means that we're going to have a billion-dollar investment in the Warren uh, truck plant. We're going to move the production from uh, Mexico to Michigan. And every uh, uh, Chrysler Automotive employee is getting a $2,000 Trump tax cut bonus and 2,500 more jobs. That's what this election is about. And the, all the prognosticators who were preaching Armageddon uh, in 2016, mm -hmm. Trump won. It was those same voices are the ones who are uh, talking about a blue wave. Just not true. The fact is, is that uh, um, this Michigan is a place where we want more jobs and more paychecks, and and uh, we need to cut auto insurance rates. So, so that's what I'm running. Uh, those are the issues that important are matter to me. So uh, there again, though, this this question of the tax cuts at the federal level. You talked about the things that it will produce on the positive side, but you sort of skipped over the huge negative, which is. Uh, billions and billions of dollars in deficit uh, and debt added to uh, added to what we already owe. At the state level, when you cut taxes, uh, you you rob the government of the ability to provide the services that it needs to provide. So, if you think about education, you think about transportation, uh, you think about uh, well, just the roads uh, here in in the state of Michigan. We need more money for those things. How can you be talking about cutting taxes and, and also be talking about fixing those problems? You see, this is a great discussion, and this is really the decision for Michigan. And there couldn't be a more stark contrast between the Democrats and, and uh, Bill Schuette in terms of how we take this state in the future. The Democrats, uh, their economic plans, it's, you know, the subtext there is economic collapse, more taxes, uh, more rules, more uh, more spending, bigger government, and it's a grand home take two. It's a, the sequel. and. I want to cut taxes because, you know, we can't afford not to. Uh, and I view uh, this as an expansi expanding uh, pie, not a, you know, a, a restrictive smaller pie. You know, people wanting to have a smaller, uh, uh, smaller pie in Michigan and brag about how you're, uh, you know, balancing uh, a smaller state. If you want, I'm not going to manage Michigan's decline. If you want someone to ma uh, encourage Michigan's growth, I'm your guy. You I, I am Detroit's best hope. I am Michigan's best hope so that we grow our population. But and we improve our third grade reading scores. But That's you, what it's about. Can you refer to any tax cut in the history of the United States that actually paid for itself the way that, that you say it, it might, with, through growth? Well, I have to tell you that I think that there have been three fundamental uh, huge tax cuts in, in America's history. John Kennedy's tax cut mm -hmm. in terms of mm -hmm. uh, cutting capital gains. That one was huge, right. It was uh, huge, and a Democrat, may I add, and then the Reagan tax cuts in, in 86, and now the Trump tax cuts. Mm -hmm. Those are really big. The Reagan tax cuts did not pay for themselves. Uh, listen, the Reagan tax, we had prosperity in this country. We had a stronger national offensive capability. And he, and, what, and I, doubled the national debt well, while he was president? Listen, I the the Reagan uh, tax cuts were important for America's growth, just as the Kennedy tax cuts were and just as the Trump tax cuts were. So those are important. And frankly, in Michigan, we've had the, the grand home income tax increase has never been rolled back. It was supposed to have been temporary. And we need to put a, a dagger through the heart of that uh, failed governorship, the last vestige of the legacy of the failed Granholm uh, governorship, and eliminate that. And then we need to cut auto insurance rates. You know, and, and Michigan is a place where 
you know, we have the highest auto insurance rates of America and the lowest third grade reading scores. That's nuts. When I'm governor, Michigan's children will read and we're going to cut auto insurance rates. Those are the issues that I think are important to Detroit's future and Michigan's future. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Bill Schuette, the Michigan Attorney General and a Republican candidate for governor. Uh, you tweeted recently that uh, you are Detroit's best hope yes. in the race for governor. I am. Talk about what you mean by that. Well, you know, here's, here's the reality. Uh, we need to drive our state forward, and we need to make sure that in Detroit we have more jobs, bigger paychecks, uh, and a school system uh, where kids read, and safety in our neighborhoods. I mean, those are the essential elements in terms of a city like Detroit, mm -hmm. in a city any place in America, quite frankly. And we're, when this election is done, the smoke clears, um, Republicans will be in charge in the State House and the State Senate. And for us to make sure we have a, a partner in Detroit working with private industry, you know, Illich plus uh, uh, Gilbert plus Penske and a whole bunch of others equal jobs. And private investment has driven Detroit. And they want to have something to work with the uh, Mayor Duggan. What we don't want is gridlock, uh, where we saw Granholm governor, uh, House and Senate with Republicans, and nothing got done. Mike Duggan gets stuff done. I know how to get stuff done. And I'm the best hope for Detroit to make sure that we continue to have growth and we can't have a log jam. You can't have a gridlock. That's why Mich uh, Michigan and Detroit's best hope. So, so one of the big issues in the city of Detroit, of course, And I is can work with Duggan, and Duggan can work with Shooty. Yeah. Uh, one of the big issues in Detroit, of course, is education. Yeah. City schools have struggled almost all of my life, in fact, uh, to, to, to produce the outcomes that, uh, that we need. As governor, you would have a lot of say over how we deal with education uh, statewide. Let's start with finance. Uh, do we spend enough on K-12 education in Michigan? And if not, how would we get more money for it? Well, I look at, I look at it this way. Uh, first, the parents need to be in charge. This is parents and family driving the education bus, so to speak. And I think education policy is really spelled, it's a four-letter word called KIDS. Simply put, that's it. And that needs to be the focus of our approach. Now, through uh, lots of different things, there's a clean slate now in Detroit, paid off debt and all of that. Now, how do we go forward together? Number one, uh, that we have the lowest third grade reading scores in America. It's outrageous. You know, the people should be up in arms about that. And it means that young children have been failed. And if you can't read, you're, it's out. You're done right. in America. You know, you just, America's been described as a shining city on a hill. <laughs> well, if you can't read the directions to get there, <laughs> how, 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 do you, how do you participate in this place sure. called hope? Sure. And if you can't spell opportunity, you're out of luck. The future, the lens, the prism through which you see Michigan, America, your life future, pretty gloomy. Yeah. And so we've got to... Um, change that. And when I'm governor, Michigan's children will read. We're going to grade our schools A through F. We ought to provide grants for uh, improving and higher performing schools. I'm going to have a liter literacy director, cabinet level, smack dab in the governor's office, uh, emphasizing reading. And I want to build a Michigan uh, reading foundation where we can have uh, transportation scholarships. Look at it this way. There may be some families who need, have a, a special need for the education of their child. 
and there may be a school that has a special program. But you can't get there maybe because the cost of transportation prohibits that. Re uh, transportation scholarships will help. Maybe you're in a uh, school that you don't like and your neighborhood school isn't, isn't good, well, you, but you can't get to another one because of the cost of transportation. So transportation scholarships would help. They do that, again, in, and they do that in Florida, and it gives people more choice. If you give families more choice, then students have right. a chance. But again, our foundation allowance for school districts is $7,500 per child. That's not by far the highest in the nation, and as you point out, it's not producing outcomes that are very good. Should it be more? Well, you know, there also, there are always all there are others rather. There are other um, uh, resources that go into a school system. It's not simply $7,500, and so the fact is, is that in what we need to do is. But that's the foundation you know, but, allowance. But, yeah, but the point is, the point is, well, in terms of dollars and cents and resources going into schools, let's make sure we use it wisely. And we need to hire uh, summer reading coaches. We need to have a, a reading festival. The it's not simply money. It's how those resources are utilized. There's been a clean slate now because of the debt that was paid off. Now let's go forward together. And the fact is, we need to try every idea we can every idea we can in order to have children read. So is That's, there enough that is money my in, focus. Is there enough money in schools? You know, the, the point is it's not the issue of money, it's how these funds are, are uh, utilized and how we give parents more choice and options. And I think charters are important. Charters are part of Michigan's future. Uh, you may disagree with that, but I think it's important to I think, ha I have think choices. We, I, I think there are good charters, there are bad charters. I think we should have a better system of determining how and where we open them and how long they can stay open once they're once they're open but there's no question that uh, th there are charter schools that are doing the things yeah. that you're talking about all i know is that when our third grade reading scores are the lowest in america the status i don't think anyone the, the could, status could argue quo with that. doing what we've yeah. done forever is fair un enough unacceptable yeah, yeah. i'm so, not going to be part of that so you you have uh, again proudly uh, embraced this president donald trump uh, embraced his embrace of of you. Uh, I appreciate his endorsement of my candidacy. To right. Me. Absolutely. So, so you and I have talked many times about uh, systemic racism, uh, the, the sins of America's past, mm -hmm. the effect that it has on mm -hmm. people today. Uh, and we may not agree on how to fix that, but I think we agree that that's real and that's important. And, and you know what? It, it's all about a dialogue. I mean, one of the pillars of but, this but place is supposed to be about civility yeah. and having discourse. Yeah, that's yeah. very important. Right. So, but Donald Trump is somebody who, throughout his life, but certainly throughout his campaign and his presidency, has taken a very different approach to those things, said very offensive things. Just last week, he said, maybe people who don't stand for the anthem ought to be deported out of the country. How can you reconcile the things that I know you believe about fairness and equality with your alliance with this person? Well, listen, I'm, I am uh, appreciative of Donald Trump's endorsement of my can candidacy for governor, and it, which has meant more jobs and uh, lower taxes. I think that's important to every American, no matter uh, your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your heritage doesn't matter. And, and so the fact that Donald Trump is cutting taxes and we're having more jobs and we're bringing the Ram truck in uh, from Mexico to Michigan, I think that's uh, uh, tremendous. You know, 
I am Michigan-centric. I focus on Michigan, and that is how I'm going to approach being governor. I'm going to work day in and day out for more jobs and lower taxes and bigger paychecks in Michigan. But That's what that, I'm going to do. Is that having it, again, both ways, the idea of embracing him for the things that you like and not dealing with these really awful things that he says and in some cases does. Well, you know, listen, I, I, uh, I have a personal philosophy that you should treat people with dignity, respect, grace. My mother used to say, a pretty is as pretty does. And so I, I'm not perfect, but I try to uh, uh, lead my life that way as governor. That's what I'm going to, to be doing and treating people and, uh, uh, and with dignity, grace, and respect. I'm going to be a, a, a governor for the city of Detroit. Uh, the county of Wayne, 82 other counties in, in Michigan, and uh, be Michigan's jobs governor uh, and uh, grow our state. Okay. That's why, that's why I hope to be judge. It's always great to sit and talk with you. Bill Schutte, I, I like Attorney General of Michigan and Republican candidate for governor. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Good being with you. Up next, Detroit Today senior producer Laura Weber Davis speaks with Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly, who would like to extend the work he's done with Governor Snyder. Stay tuned to more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. Running for governor as a lieutenant governor is a precarious position. On one hand, you've got more experience in the executive office than any of your opponents, and you're the most qualified for the promotion. On the other hand, voters often get fatigued with two terms of an administration and want to see something different. It's the same conundrum vice presidents face when they want to take their turn leading the White House. But Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly has a unique take in this field of candidates. He's part of an administration that had broad support and appeal among those ever-important independent voters in the past two elections. That centered approach could be what Republicans need to win this year in the general election. My guest right now is Brian Kelly, Lieutenant Governor of Michigan and a Republican candidate for governor. Brian, welcome. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be with you today. So let's talk uh, about this continuation of, uh, of a Governor Snyder legacy. I think what comes to mind for the past term for most people right now is this sort of inundation with the Flint water crisis and how that rocked, uh, for all intents and purposes, your administration. And I, I just, I'm curious if you feel like that is something that you can get through to voters that that you you deserve another chance or another term. Of course, it wouldn't be Governor Snyder's uh, term anymore, but that the administration should carry forward with uh, policy and strategy when we've sort of been rocked as a state by this crisis. Michigan has made an extraordinary comeback. It is undeniable that our state is in a better position than it was in 2010. We've seen a 17-year low in unemployment. We've seen 540,000 new jobs created. We've seen our income rise at a top 10 rate in the nation during those years. In fact, in the beginning, the biggest problem we had was not enough jobs. Today, whether you're in the most rural area to, to the inner city, the biggest problem we hear from our employers are job providers. They can't find enough people to fill all these jobs that they're creating. And so that's a, it's very different when we talk about running on a record of taking our state to the next level as opposed to what the governor and I were running on in 2010. In 2010, our state was in complete and total crisis. It had been crisis so long that people weren't even acting like it was one anymore. And uh, so it was a total reinvention. Now there's a foundation built, and it's about bringing it to the next level. And one of the things I'm, I'm, uh, that I bring to the table is a problem-solving approach, bringing people together. 
Now, something goes wrong. You asked about Flint in particular. When something goes wrong, there are two types of, of leaders. There are people that look backward and argue about the past and point fingers and, and cast blame, or the people that do what I did, which is move my office to Flint. In 2016, I worked in Flint so much, I filed a Flint city income tax return. Hmm. And, the, and, and I was all about the future, about infrastructure, yes, of course, but also education and economic development and nutrition and health care, all the things that were needed in order to move this, this city forward. And Flint is on a roll now. It is the easiest city in America to fall in love with. It is an amazing place. The people there are amazing. And what they're doing today and the, and the advancements that are being made in that city, they're an inspiration to me. Governor Snyder, when he started, came in as the, as the Detroit governor. He wanted to be a, a Republican governor who was very interested in a turnaround for the city, which was sort of a unique thing at the time. Um, now, that certainly held true throughout his, his run. Uh, now that you've spent so much time in Flint and you've been through this sort of traumatic time with the city, what have you learned about uh, American cities in general, the challenges faced by people who live in cities that have seen chronic disinvestment over decades? What have you learned that maybe surprised you that you hadn't known before? Well, the less, there are so many different lessons learned, but it, it's reinforcement that we need to be about the politics of addition, not the politics of, of division. And that's what concerns me about the, the direction that our, our country has been headed for the last 20 years is that there's so much division. Our political system, the people in politics are getting so good at dividing people up and pitting them against each other. And you can win elections that way. I mean, clearly you can win elections that way. But it makes governance after the election almost impossible, at least... Not, not ideal to get the best possible outcomes. The secret to our success in Michigan is we've been about the results, about the outcomes, about getting things done for people. And you have to bring people together in order to do that. So the, the approach that I take when, when faced with a crisis is first listen, listen to people. Take to heart their point of view, especially when they have a different point of view from your, from your own. And you, you learn something. I mean, you, you, you find out that people have the opposite opinion from you. They may have a, a perfectly good reason for having the opposite opinion. And, and knowing that often, oftentimes will provide, at the, at the very least, a better relationship to have a, a, uh, a disagreement on, on better grounds. Hmm. Or it can provide a, a, a better understanding to solve the problem in a way that is unifying instead of divisive. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Laura Weber Davis. I'm here with Brian Kelly. He is Lieutenant Governor of Michigan and also a Republican candidate for governor. Uh, Brian, I first met you when you were a state rep. Um, and from that time on, um, I would say that one of the tent poles of your um, of your political ideology, if you will, has been mental health and and wanting to get health coverage for uh, autism as well. That was something you were successful in. You were able to sort of turn the tide with your Republican um, peers in the legislature and, and get them to come around and see the, the significance and importance of that. Is that something that you would continue as governor? And, and if so, uh, what sort of extension would you like to see maybe of mental health issues? Would it reach into mental health courts or mental health parity? It started out with an advocacy that I learned about because I'm raising a daughter with autism. It, it's not that I didn't care before. I just didn't understand. I didn't know much about it. And, uh, and so it's like this 
first time when I had felt in, in, a, in a very real and personal way stigma and, uh, and, and, getting, and, and navigating the system, how hard everything was. I thought, boy, if it's this hard for somebody as well-connected as me, then it must be darn near impossible for other people. You shouldn't have to be the lieutenant governor to find your way through these systems. You, everybody should have a chance, you know, that equal opportunity to go out there and be successful. And, uh, and so it started with autism. But what I learned was that many of the same challenges are faced by people with other types of brain health needs. So whether it's a, a chronic mental illness that needs to be managed, that you can't really cure, but you just have to figure out how to, how to manage and help a person stay productive and involved in life and, and community and society, uh, to, to addiction, where a person's brain function has been altered, literally, physically altered by addiction. And, uh, and, and that, so I saw this system that kind of cast aside, or people are, are forced to live in the shadows when uh, when they have so much potential, so much to offer, and uh, and and so it's healthcare. It does include healthcare. It's where we started with autism insurance reform, but it's also employment and special education. It's uh, it's community access and accessibility across the board. Having an inclusive mindset in everything that we do. That's why it's important. Like when we do website development, or when I'm doing a town hall, for example, I did town halls all across our state. Well, I never knew if I was going to have somebody with a hearing impairment right, in one sure. of my town hall meetings, but I had this great network of interpreters that were willing to come and provide that service to make sure that we were being as inclusive as possible in the conversation. And that wasn't something that came about because of any kind of strategy. It came about because I have relationships with people with disabilities. Right. And, and, uh, and, and I believe more people in our state, more people in our communities would do more if they just understood more about what it was about and what the need is. People want to understand. We have to give them a chance to. Well, is there any uh, specific policy that you would like to spearhead as governor? Or do you feel like some of this stuff will sort of come out in the legislative process? What, is there anything that you have top of mind? Special education mm -hmm. is an area that we have a tremendous amount of work to do. Mm. We've, we spent a lot of time uh, debating and discussing and moving education policy, policy as a whole there has been a shockingly small amount of attention and focus on special education and kids that arguably need more help than everybody else and have so much to offer. And, uh, and, and that, so I put together the task force and we have recommendations, both financial recommendations and policy recommendations. And I intend to use those recommendations as a roadmap moving forward. Some of that work has already happened. Uh, Restriction of restraint and seclusion practices in schools is an example of that. Positive behavior interventions and supports uh, spreading throughout our, uh, our state of different behavior management practices, particularly for kids that have a brain disorder of some sort. And, um, and then also uh, this year we, we have in the budget a uh, uh, state support for early on services, developmental screening early because you can interventions early in brain development are more effective than when we diagnose and, and intervene later. So these are all things that have come out of that task force work, but we have a lot of work to do. I mean, there has, we have seen generation after generation of education policy that hasn't really adequately met the needs of the kids that have the biggest challenges. Let's continue. I have a little list of uh, 
topics. I'd like to see how you, what your flavor is on some of these issues. Sure. Um, but let's start with education. We've covered now um, special education, but there's been a lot of attention lately poured on this idea of Michigan's education system really falling behind uh, over the past decade or two, and that we're in a pretty bad place um, nationally. And I'm just... I'm curious how you see that turnaround happening. How is the state going to make a big shift and not just a small one? We've tried over the years to pass substantive legis- legislative packages that only seem to sort of allow the state to fall even farther behind. How do we turn that tide? Well, first of all, this is the it needs to be everybody's top priority. It's number one. If you want to have a good outcome, you have to have a good beginning. Our pre-K through 12 system it is my number one priority. If you look at my list of, uh, of, of issues that, that I'm running on, that, I'm developed, that I have developed plans for, this is the one I make number one. And we don't have to invent new things. We can look around, you can look at states, states that have always been successful like Massachusetts or, uh, or Minnesota that has a great reputation. But what I've been more intrigued by and what I've, I've based many of my plans on it is looking at uh, at Tennessee, Tennessee was at the bottom, and they've they've seen an extraordinary growth. Right. The uh, so we've made we've made some of the foundational investments that it takes a few years to see those show up. Early childhood education, for example, universal preschool. You don't see that show up in in third grade reading scores for several years because kids are getting it early, and it's going to help them later on. Uh, but it's something that has been that's relatively new. The pre third grade reading initiative is something that really is still we're just finishing up the first full year uh, of it and so you wouldn't expect that there'd be dramatic results that would that would have shown up this quickly but but I think the the needs are are a lot more comprehensive than that and I want to talk about teachers and supporting teachers I just like supporting the heck out of teachers I I I want I, I want us to think about teachers the same way we do as you know, firefighters and, and police officers, like heroes of our community. So part of it is just how we how we hold up the profession. There's been so much fighting, the lost decade especially, I think set us back a lot, a very confrontational environment in our education system. But our teachers, I mean, the teachers are the heroes. And, uh, and, and we need to treat them that way. And, and when I look at what Tennessee did, they have spent so much time on teacher professional development getting best practices, teacher coaching, master teachers, uh, the, the idea of helping teachers become good teachers, and then good teachers become great teachers, and great teachers become even greater teachers. So would you like to see some more, like, maybe um, state-sponsored or state-funded continued education for teachers and programming? Continuing education, but continuing education that is taking the latest and greatest in practices and research and getting it into the classroom. Right now we have continuing education, but it's it's not very interactive, it's not coaching, it's not on-the-spot, real-world application. Um, application in a classroom. And, um, and that's, it's a really powerful thing. It's how we prepare teachers in the very beginning. But when it comes to a teacher that, if you have somebody who's been teaching for 20 years, yeah, they, they've got a lot of great experience. But there's a lot of new research that's come out. There are a lot of new practices that have come out. There's a, there are different standards and, and helping teachers to develop and to, and to continue, like any other profession. Doctors do it. When uh, doctors that, uh, if you're a brain surgeon, for example, if you're not up to speed on what's happened in the last week in, uh, in, in research, then you're not qualified anymore to, uh, to do the best that you can do. It's just things are moving so quickly. In education, I want to see us to get to, uh, get to a point where 
we're supporting teachers in that way. And I think that'd be a better role for our, our Department of Education. Today, it's just a compliance organization. Hmm. And you always have to do compliance. That's important. But I'd love to see, and what I'm, what I'm looking to make happen is to transform the Department of Education into a, uh, a, a center of best practices, a place that has the ability, the experts, and the trainers that can, that can support our ISDs and our school districts in taking everything to the next level. Let's, uh, let's try a couple of these ballot measures that we could be looking at. Legalizing marijuana, you've seen the process go from uh, nothing to medical marijuana. Um, how about full legalization? Where do you stand on that? I don't support it. I know that the, uh, and I, d I do support medical marijuana. I've seen it make a profound impact on, um, on seizure disorders and, and uh, people that are going through tra cancer treatments that need to get their appetite back. The, um, and, to, and to get stronger and control nausea. But there's a, um, when it comes to overall recreational legalization, I don't think that's a positive thing. I don't think introducing another drug would be a positive thing for, um, for our community and our society. Now, if it's going to happen, then um, obviously I will fully respect the will of the voters and I'll, and I'll do my best to implement it uh, and implement that will of the voters. Even though it would still be illegal at the federal level, you would still support it uh, for the voters on a state level? Absolutely. When, when This is one of those issues that I don't think that the federal government really has, I think they've overstepped their, their bounds. When it comes to something like, um, you know, which, which drugs are, um, are controlled and regulated and which ones are outright, outright illegal, uh, I think that's a state policy issue and it should be left up to states. Brian Kelly is the Lieutenant Governor of Michigan and currently a Republican candidate for governor. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Laura. It's been great to be with you. Coming up next, Stephen will speak with Republican candidate for governor, State Senator Patrick Kolbeck. Stay with us. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Today we are hearing from the Republican candidates for governor. State Senator Patrick Kolbeck has carved out a space in the GOP field as the consummate conservative, willing to shirk the leadership within his own party in favor of conservative principles. Indeed, Kolbeck is considered to have the most conservative record in the state Senate, but it's come at a cost. Kolbeck has been unpopular with some movers and shakers in the Republican Party, which makes his run for governor that much tougher as he yeah. faces Attorney General Bill Schuette, who's running a populist campaign of sorts, and Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly, who's running as a down-the-middle, generally likable guy. <laughs> Here to talk more about his position within the party and his stance on political issues is Patrick Kolbeck, state senator and Republican candidate Governor, welcome to Detroit today. Good to be with you, Steve. Yeah. Uh, so l let's talk about that um, that uh, reputation. I guess you have. <laughs> uh, you are not you are not the most popular member of the Republican Caucus uh, among Republicans. Uh, I, what what is it about um, your beliefs that leads you to to, to be you know uh, you know the, the sort of counter the countervailing voice in that caucus sometimes well i just so you know too i mean i'm not being conservative for the sake of being conservative i'm just trying to be consistent with what i ran on when i first was elected for office and what mm -hmm. i told the people so i believe i'm standing up for the best interests of the people and that's where the friction starts because i'll start talking about policies in the caucus and outside in the senate floor where we talk about 
you know, important issues like fixing our roads, for example, and I'll come up with an approach that is not the approach that's blessed by uh, senior leadership, which is usually about just throwing more money at the problem, going off and increasing taxes and fees. And when I come up with an alternative, that's not met with a very warm reception because I've identified how to fix the roads without increasing taxes. So that creates a rub. And so a lot of the friction internally in the caucus is I get caucus members that are coming back from their districts talking to their constituents saying, why can't you become more like Colbeck? Mm -hmm. And obviously that's going to create a little bit of friction. And that's at the rub of it. And most of the, you know, you can read more about it actually in my book, Wrestling Gators, because it talks about <laughs> an outsider's guy that drained the swamp. It talks about the different priorities that different elected officials have once they get elected into office. And my priority has always been the best interest of the people I serve. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, if you were to win your party's nomination yep. uh, and then have to compete against a Democrat yeah. in the general election, you got to reach out into the middle. Uh, and you, that's, not, that's not the style of... Uh, of, of work that you have sort of done so far in, yep. in the legislature. Um, there's just some examples, but, but talk about how you would do that in the general yep. election. What would you say to independent voters? What would you say to Democrats uh, about why you think they should vote for you? Well, first of all, I'd submit that the bigger challenge is going to be for Bill Schutte or Brian Kelly if they were to get the nomination because they don't have the support of the grassroots. And ultimately, this is going to be about enthusiasm when you get to the polls. Uh, every year, as you know, we go eight, eight years Republican governor, eight years Democratic We've governor. We keep going in that flip-flop land. And that's because we just keep doing the politics as usual button. So I think the bigger challenge would be for them than for me, because we've actually got the support of people, and they're both independents and Democrats across the board. I've had people stopped at gas stations that are pulling up next to them that are avowed union members saying, hey, you know, they told us to go off and vote for Hillary in the last election, but we're voting for Colbeck this election. We've got people that I've gone, I was the first Republican gubernatorial candidate that went to the Michigan Association of Government Employees in over 38 years, mm -hmm. and so I had people coming out afterwards that were excited about my candidacy because I spoke truth to power. And I didn't shy away from right to work or defined benefits or pension plans in that discussion. They want someone who is gen genuine. They're tired of people just polishing up the same old politics as usual Apple and then expecting people to take a bite out of it. So if you were to win in November, uh, talk about what uh, the two or three highest priorities would be for you in Lansing. I think the most ambitious challenge that we have is to eliminate the state personal income tax. And I think that is the highest priority. It has to stay the highest priority because it's not just a you know, just add water proposition. It's something that you've got to work towards, and it's not just one bill that achieves it. It's a practical, milestone-based approach that's very important to us, and here's why. Um, we're, we're here at the Detroit Regional Chamber. We're talking about the shortage of qualified talent to go off and fill some of our jobs. Well, a lot of that talent, we keep graduating from our universities and they go to other states. The fastest-growing states are Florida, Texas, Tennessee. What do they have in common? Zero percent income tax and a 7% sales tax. Michigan eliminates the state personal income tax. We're at 0% income tax and 6% sales tax. A lot of these folks vote with their feet because of the numbers and, and where they're retiring, where they're going off and setting up their families. They're doing it where they can do best economically. So, so let me ask you this. That would blow, I don't know, a couple billion dollar hole in the current budget if you did it without replacing the revenue. Yeah, you don't How do it all at once. That? You don't do it all at once. It's a I, The detailed plan is out in the Detroit News article, and if you should go to my website at ColbeckForGovernor.com. There's a lot of systemic uh, uh, um, expense-based reductions that you have in there. Like? Like, number one, let's start with Medicaid. It's an $18 billion line item. I'm not talking about cutting care to people that need it. I'm actually ta talking about providing Medicaid services in a higher quality manner by focusing on preventive care. 
and I've proven, and we're going to be doing a Medicaid don't pilot. You think, don't you think Healthy Michigan is doing that? No, not at all. And I think it's a, it's a good matter of fact. Healthy Michigan's having to be buttressed in by the extra general fund dollars. When we pass that gas tax increase, $600 million increase, they repurpose $400 million from our transportation fund to fix our ailing roads to go backfill potholes and Medicaid expansion, i.e. Healthy Michigan. So I would suggest that the exact opposite is happening. It's unsustainable, and it's actually due to automatically repeal in 2020 because it hasn't met its savings projections. But, but, but uh, if you think about the things, the problems we have yeah. in, in the state, uh, roads, right? Everyone's yeah. very worked up about this, the, the condition of the roads. That's uh, an area where we spend less than other states, especially in our per region, capita. per yeah. capita. But uh, not per mile. Uh, not per mile, but that's because, you know, we're a much bigger state than some of those yeah. some of those others. It's uh, only the mafia that prices out <laughs> pavement contracts per capita. I'm just telling so, you. <laughs> so, so uh, also education. Yeah. Uh, the, we are, we are, sliding down the, the, the ladder of uh, outcomes. Uh, we're also falling behind the pace of investment in education, both at the K-12 and yep. uh, the higher ed. So, so if those things need more money, yep. how, can you, how can you justify getting rid of the income tax, which is one of the principal ways that uh, we fund those things? Well, we're not going to impact schools. We're not going to impact public safety or any of the usual red herrings that people throw when you start about talking about cutting taxes. For schools, I've already identified a way to go off and provide more funding with school, for schools without increasing taxes. It's my Enhanced Michigan Education Savings Program. It can provide up to $3,000 more per pupil per year for education without increasing taxes by encouraging partnerships with businesses and work-study programs and monetized reward programs. There's, uh, there's a lot of options on that and on how to go off and approach it. But the Medicaid, I just want to go back to that yeah. for a second because that is a big opportunity. We can deliver better care for people while saving money if we get out of this top-down control, uh, this managed care approach. I actually go off and get out of the insurance model for 80% of the claims that are done for health care, and that's what this direct primary care service is. You cut the strings on the insurance companies and just focus it back on an individual relationship between a doctor and a patient. That it, uh, focus on preventive care, that keeps them out of the expensive catastrophic care. That is a big deal. And it's not just Medicaid that it helps. It helps lower the cost of state government and, uh, and local government by about $300 million. It helps free up uh, about $6 billion to $7 billion in our private sector economy because employers can pay less for good quality health care for their employees. It's actually a, I call it the uh, kind of the kerplunk stick for, or a Swiss Army knife for, for government funding because if you focus in on the health care, it opens up a lot of other doors. Okay. Uh, other than that, uh, that income tax elimination, yeah. what, else, what else would be on that priority list? Well, a lot of it depends. I mean, connect in. I'm an old systems engineer. That's my background. Mm -hmm. And so the connected thread on that is broad-based economic development strategy that focuses on lower cost of government, which is tied to lowering the state income tax which ties into all these small businesses that are out there that are pass-through entities to get taxed at the personal income tax level. Lower the cost of health care by not just 20%. That's a boon to industry. And you lower the cost of energy by promoting energy choice so that the 10% that gets savings on the energy choice market right now actually extends to all of us. That helps not only businesses and economic development, but guess what else it helps? It helps out families that are struggling to make ends meet. Um, another key thing, and I know it's near and dear to your heart, is lowering the cost of auto insurance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if you remove the state mandates, um, everybody sits there and says, well, what about my traumatic brain injury? What about taking care of my lifetime benefits? Well, there's a way to actually remove those state benefits, those mandates that we have for coverage, and actually retain those lifetime benefits. I'd outlined a way to go off and do that. 
um, and it deals with a closer examination of Michigan Catastrophic Fund. It's not an easy haul, but I think we can get a minimum of 40% off by eliminating the mandates, and you can get up to 60% reduction, which would put us below the national average in the cost of our insurance. Yeah. Uh, you, you talk a lot about lowering costs, yep. saving money, uh, those kind of things. Yeah, that's but, the way I roll. But, but, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but, but the flip side of that uh, argument and those, yeah. those considerations is this idea of investment. Yeah. What, what should Michigan be investing in that it's not. A lot of people say it's higher ed. Yep. A lot of people say it's K-12. Certainly, we believe it's the roads, right? Yeah. Um, talk about that tension between uh, the idea that uh, the goal of government is to tax people the least yeah. uh, and the idea that the goal of government is to serve people the best. Well, let me flip that around a little bit. When you cut taxes, who are you really investing in? You're investing in the people. You're way. saying, guys, you, you know best how to spend your money. Sure. And and that's what I'm doing. My, my highest priority is the people of Michigan. And I want to make sure that they're prioritized. Right? We got, we're up here at the Detroit Regional Chamber. There's a lot of folks that are clamoring for us to spend more money. And the solution to every government issue that's up here is to spend more money, to increase taxes. When I was uh, first elected into the Senate, they sent you off to a legislative boot camp and they paraded a whole bunch of experts. And every single one of those experts said, you got to increase taxes, you got to increase fees. I'm telling you, it doesn't work that way in the real world. And that's where I come from over two, sec uh, two decades in the private sector, including six years as a small business owner. I can't always go off and ask my customers for more but money. that's very different. I mean, if you look at states that are successful at the things that we're not successful at, yeah. uh, what's the tax rate in Massachusetts, for instance? Uh, closer to home, Minnesota, yeah. uh, a, a state that's lapping us on uh, a lot of these issues. They have a higher tax rate than, than, than we do, and they've raised taxes to try to do more in those critical areas. What's wrong with, what's wrong with doing that? Well, I think the focus is, and this is what I focus in on in, when I was budget chair for State Police and Department of Military and Veterans Affairs, I start off every exercise with the concept of what they call zero-based budget. So the idea is, um, what are the services we're being asked to provide for in this particular agency? How much does each one of these services cost? What do you judge the, how do you judge the quality of those services and how do you judge the uh, you know, capacity metrics? So when do you need to scale up or scale down the funding for those services? That's where you start in every single one of these areas. And where we've got areas that we think we can um, perform better by throwing more money at it, by all means, let's go off and make the business case for doing that. But right now, the only time that people are ever, um, the only solution that people are even considering are the ones that throw more money at it. Nobody's looking at the other side of the general ledger. And that's why I've earned the uh, endorsement of David Lippman, former chief economist at it, Comerica Bank, because I'm actually the only candidate that actually looks at the expense side of the ledger. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Patrick Kolbeck, a state senator and Republican candidate for governor. We are talking today with the Republican candidates for governor. Uh, I want to go down a list of uh, issues, sort of hot button issues, okay. and uh, get your get your take on them. Okay, how about transit, mass transit, RTA, huh. uh, a big subject, uh, how we fund that. We decided yeah. several years ago that this was going to be the approach. I'm, I'm a little puzzled that now you have people saying, well, we made that decision, but we don't want to pay for it uh, in, yeah. in the way that uh, we can agree on. What what would you do? It's fine. I, I I have no problem with mass transit. The problem is those, those who are paying for it should be the ones that benefit from it. And most of the plans that I've seen for the RTA, they're leveraging the tax base for a lot of communities that are not going to leverage the financial benefit associated with the transportation system. That's got to get reconciled. And you also got to address the legacy costs of the current 
um, providers and like DDOT that are out there that we're not addressing. We didn't reorganize any of that stuff. We're just kind of whitewashing over the, over that with the current RTA. And you got to address the core financial issues with those organizations. And um, maybe government is not the best way of going off and addressing that. There's a lot of disruptors out there like Uber and Lyft that maybe a better way of providing some of these services. I, I don't. I I think. Uh, when the government gets involved, we kind of block out competition, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, you, you talk about the cost-benefit uh, analysis with, with RTA yeah. and, and some communities that wouldn't get as much benefit as they put in, but isn't that the whole idea of a regional approach is that, number one, with something like transit, which yeah. benefits everybody because it gets people to work, it gets people to schools, it helps grow the economy regionally, but some communities don't need as much of the service as others, and we agree together to pay for those things so that the whole region grows. Is that not uh, the way you see the issue? No, it gets down, if it was just uh, being taxed at the regional level um, and you actually saw a spreading of the benefits at the regional level, okay, right, there's, there's well, a... There's, spread. I mean, they, they, they aren't spread. Well, I'll give you a tangible example. So if we're going to go off and put in a rail line, we're, whenever somebody comes into... Um, into Detroit and they're flying into Detroit, where are they going to want to go off and, and visit, right? Mm -hmm. First of all, they got to get to their hotels. Well, most of the hotels that people are staying at are out in like the Livonia Nova area and they're, they're kicking out there. There's no yeah, mass transit out to there. Detroit now. <laughs> yeah, there are. It's, it's, it's definitely changing, yeah. but um, it's, and the most of the folks in the, in those communities are the ones actually paying for a lot of the, they're going to, that's where the tax base is for a lot of the money that's going to go into the, so they should receive some commensurate benefit. Okay. And finally, Legalizing marijuana, should yeah. Republicans uh, preempt a vote by the people uh, by by making the issue moot before November? Do you? I, I, no, and I, I think we need to make the case why it's a bad uh, thing to do. It's a bad idea because we just talked about, we're here at the, talking about our talent shortfalls in the state. A lot of employers are going to be putting a drug test as part of the condition of employment. You can't pass a drug test if you're rec taking marijuana on a recreational basis. Um, that's going to lead to a lot more government assistance requirements because they're not going to be able to find jobs. It's a really bad uh, um, slippery slope that we'd head on on there. Now, having said that, people voted in. We'll find a way to make it work here in the state. But I, I think it's a really bad idea, and I, need, I think we need to fight it like the state of Arizona did. See, I would, uh, I would have thought uh, perhaps your conservative I, credentials here would I have said, look, uh, the government has no business yeah. telling you what you do. Uh, in the privacy of I've got a home, libertarian streak, right? and, yeah. and, and there's right. a lot of folks who, and this is what gets really tricky, right? Because up at the federal government, technically they have no authority to go off and put this under a controlled substance. They never passed a constitutional amendment like we it's did true. with the 18th um, Amendment for, pro, I mean, for prohibition, right. right? We didn't do that for for marijuana or anything like that. So you I, would even I get question that. How, how that happened. Yeah, it's been a long time. So it's tough to go off and challenge, you know, constitutional issues, um, you know, 40... 50, 60 years after the right. fact, right? Courts I mean, don't really like yeah, that. Yeah, so it's like, uh, where were you guys when, right. when this was passing? Right. Well, I was still in my mom's womb, <laughs> or a twinkle in the eye of my mom and dad, so I couldn't fight it back then. But uh, you have to look at the societal impacts, too. I mean, I, I wouldn't make an unconstitutional argument associated with this if it were passed, because I, I think there's a basis for that. So, um, But you do got to address the fact that these are going to be cash transactions with large sums of money. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a reason why most of the dispensaries are going to be in old bank vaults, right? Yeah, that's true. Okay, Patrick Kolbeck, Republican state senator and Republican candidate for governor.
Thanks very much for joining us on Detroit hey, today. Thanks, Stephen. Not come alive. That's going to be it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. If you want to hear our conversations with any of the Republican or Democratic candidates for governor, you can check them out at WBET.org. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producer is Gus Navarro. The Detroit Today theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.